Please be seated. In her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, the American writer Annie Dillard included an essay titled An Expedition to the Poles. And in this essay, Dillard weaves together imagery drawn from her experience at worship and imagery drawn from various expeditions to the Arctic. And the effect of this weaving together is quite striking and at times provides some very illuminating insights into the life of the church. For example, at one point, Dillard reflects on the many hazards that are faced by those who travel to the Arctic, those who seek some form of communion with that uncompromising environment. And then she writes the following. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? We're like children playing on the floor with our chemistry sets, Dillard says, mixing up a batch of TNT to pass the time on a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear soft hats and nice clothes to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For some day, God may draw us out to where we can never return. Now, I will admit I have taken a few liberties with Dillard's verbiage, but the liberties that I've taken are intended to draw out the essential insight at the heart of this evocative passage. Dillard helps us get at a question having to do with what it is we're doing here today. What do we do when we baptize people? What do we do when we celebrate the Eucharist? What do we do every time we gather for worship? Should we, in fact, all be wearing crash helmets and lashing ourselves to the pews? The answer to that question is found in our gospel lesson. And if we take a look at both John the Baptist and Jesus will see something important that bears not only on our understanding of worship, but it bears on the entire experience of the life of faith. So let's look first at John. What exactly was John doing out there in the Judean wilderness? Why was he baptizing people? Believe it or not, there is actually a fairly robust scholarly discussion about how to answer that question. John was a mystery to the people of his time, and he has been a mystery ever since. And the reason that John was such a mystery had to do with the kind of baptism that he offered. The kind of baptism that John practiced and that John called people to was virtually unprecedented in Israel. The people of Israel were familiar with certain kinds of baptism, but not this. This is different. They knew about the kind of baptism that was administered to Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. John wasn't doing that. He was baptizing people who were already Jews. The people of Israel also knew about the kinds of baptisms or ritual cleansing that one would routinely observe as a way of maintaining ceremonial purity. The Essenes who lived near the Dead Sea were among the most prominent examples of people who practiced those forms of baptism. John wasn't doing that either. He was baptizing everyone, 
not just those who sought to live a consecrated life, set apart from others who were not as observant. So nobody was quite sure what John was doing. And one of the Gospels includes a story about a conversation between John and a group of religious leaders who come from Jerusalem down to the Jordan, and they ask John, who are you exactly? What is it you're doing? Why are you out here? What about this baptism of yours? And the answer that he gave them only further confused them. And the reason people had such a hard time making sense of John's baptism is that it looked forward and not backward. It looked to the future and not to the past. John's baptism was not a reminder of something old and familiar. John's baptism was a sign of something new and unprecedented. John's baptism was intended to point people towards a new creation, a time when God would overturn every established order. John's message to Israel was that the world as they knew it was about to end. In other words, John invoked power. John was telling people to put on their crash helmets and lash themselves in because they were going for a ride. Now let's look at Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, it's a sign that the new creation that John preached had begun. And we see this most clearly in Luke's description of what happens to Jesus. When he had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. The one whom John had said would come after him, the one who would baptize not with water, but with fire, the one who would pour out onto the world the power of God's Holy Spirit, God's anointed Messiah, had arrived. And God had begun drawing out the whole world to a place from which it would never return. After this, there was no going back. Things would never be the same again. But here, of course, is where it starts to get interesting because what Luke implies is that very few people recognized the new creation had arrived. In fact, the only person who seems to have recognized it was Jesus. Not John, not the crowds who were there being baptized right next to Jesus, not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not the Romans, nobody. Later on in Luke's, in Luke's narrative, after Jesus begins his ministry, starts to attract attention, John sends some of his disciples to Jesus and they ask him, are you the guy? The new creation, the power of God, arrives, neither with a bang nor with a whimper, but in virtual silence. And it works its way into the old creation in a way that is so subtle and so gentle as to be virtually unnoticed. What happened to the power? What about the crash helmets? Now, of course, the baptism in the Jordan is not the only story that we have about Jesus. There would be plenty of times over the course of Jesus's ministry when a crash helmet might have come in handy. And there would, of course, be plenty of power. The kind of power that was active in the life and ministry of Jesus is most evident in his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the Father. So Dillard is right. 
We need to be mindful of what it is we're doing here today. We are here to invoke a power strong enough to raise someone from the dead and to call out of nothing that which is. Crash helmets and life preservers at the front door would not be out of place. What we do this day and every day when we gather for worship is to bear witness to new creation, not something old and familiar, but something unprecedented and unimaginable. But it's a power that looks forward and not backward. The baptism of Jesus was a signpost along the way, but that was not the final fulfillment of the reign of God. The resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the Father were likewise signposts along the way, but they weren't the end of the journey. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, another signpost, but not the end of the road. The meaning of the incarnation and the meaning of our lives are ultimately grounded in an unimaginable future when the wisdom and the power and the glory of God will govern every dimension of creation. And the power of God is out there drawing us forward. It anticipates the future and does not memorialize either the past or the present. And because the power of God orients us to the future, it speaks to us in silence. The past murmurs, the present screams, but the future whispers. We have to strain to hear the future, and that is the direction from which the power of God comes to us. And it works its way into our lives in ways that are so subtle and so gentle that we oftentimes don't notice until after the fact. And that brings us back to baptism. The baptism of Jesus was the beginning of his ministry, the inauguration of something that he knew was waiting for him out there in the future. And it was his baptism that set his feet on the path that he would follow for the rest of his earthly ministry. Later in Luke's gospel, long after his baptism by John in the Jordan, Jesus says to his disciples, I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under until it is completed. His whole life was oriented towards what he expected God was going to do in and through him. And the same is true for us. The same is true for everyone who is baptized. All those who are baptized and who are joined to Christ, united to him both in his death and in his resurrection. Being baptized means learning to live your life so that it is ultimately oriented in the direction of the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life toward an unimaginable future that is ordered by the glory of God. All the promises that we make when we're baptized to continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to persevere in resisting evil, to proclaim the gospel by word and example, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, all of those promises are intended to remind us that we have been born again and raised to newness of life. And just as the baptism of Jesus was the beginning of his ministry, so too does our baptism mark the beginning of our ministries. Following his baptism, Jesus found himself driven by the Spirit out into the desert and then into the mission that his Father had given him. 
And following our baptisms, we too are people who are driven by the Spirit, sent out on the mission that Jesus gives to us, to share with him in the work of transforming this world so that it reflects the glory of God. If we paraphrase Annie Dillard, through baptism, God has drawn us out to where we can never return. And the place to which he has drawn us is himself. The future that awaits us is God. And as we respond in faith to his call, we share with him in the work of redemption. Now in just a few minutes, we will initiate several people into the new life of Christ, and we will renew our baptismal vows. May the Lord who gives us the will to make these promises give us the grace and the power to perform them that we may at length be raised to new life in the future that God has prepared for all those who are in Christ Jesus. To the honor and glory of his name, amen.